Make your way to 1 Timothy. We've been going through that letter that Paul wrote to Timothy all those years ago, and you can go into chapter 1 because we're in chapter 1, and we'll hit a passage starting in verse 12 to verse 17. Now, what we're going to do in the next three weeks is be in this same passage. Um, This passage of these verses from 12 to 17, we're going to camp on because the theme is so great and the realities are so deep that we want to squeeze every last drop we can out of these verses. Now, personally, for my own soul, just to sit in these verses has been uh, a joy, and I want to share what I'm learning with you. And we're going to read the whole thing, but I want to actually, before we do that, before we get there, I want to just, just land right in the middle of it, in verse 15. We're going to land right in verse 15 because this will help us see the whole of it. And I want to see, or I want you to read this, and we're going to think about this for a second. Chapter 1, verse 15 says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This was a saying that around the time of the early church, when this was written, it was probably said to other churches. It was probably a normal thing that churches shared with one another. This saying, and Paul grabbed hold of it right here and put it in his letter. He declared that it was worthy to be believed. It was deserving of full acceptance. And he said that the saying was this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul then tagged on the end of the saying, of whom I am the foremost, the first. And this is the most profound, most amazing, most precious, most life-changing reality that the universe knows. I want to say it again and think about it more slowly. Christ Jesus the eternal Son of God who existed in eternity past in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit. He came into the world. That is, in the incarnation, took on a human nature, entered our world, the world that is the system of this sick, darkened, diseased, depraved world filled with sinners. And this eternal second person of the Trinity, Christ Jesus, entered in, incarnated Himself, this broken world. Why did He do this? Why did He come? He came to save sinners. Every kind of sinner. Rich sinners and poor sinners and smart sinners and simple sinners and self-righteous sinners and self-loathing sinners. And Paul finishes it and says, of all these sinners, I am the foremost. This is the most amazing reality the world knows. This is the most amazing truth the world has ever encountered. The reality of the Son of God entering the world to save sinners. This is the reason the church has existed the last 2,000 years. This is the reason why missionaries have traveled to foreign countries to literally lay down their lives and die for the cause of Christ. Friends, this is the reason we're here this morning. Because this is true. 
And this is not a sentiment we try to get ourselves in and work up some sort of feeling every week or every Sunday. This is the reality that Christ Jesus has come. He has come for sinners. He has done the work to save them on the cross and in the resurrection. He has come to save sinners. All throughout history, this truth has been verified and testified in the lives of people who have been saved, sinners who have been saved. In the fourth century, there's a man named Augustine. He was a a young man. He was tormented by his own lusts. He was tormented by his own uh, his own passions within him that he couldn't control. He had heard the gospel, but he wrestled with it. His own writings say that he tore his hair. He hammered at his forehead with his own fists. He hugged his knees. He agonized over his own sin. And he heard one day in his own backyard a voice of a child saying, take up and read, take up and read. He didn't know what was being said, but he went and he found a Bible. He opened up. The first thing he saw was in Romans chapter 13. He read it and the verses right there told him to put away the sinful lusts and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said that when he read that passage, he said, for in an instant as I came to the end of that sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and Augustine could testify to that. Martin Luther was a man the same kind of way. He felt crushed by the demands of God's law. When the name God was given to him, he trembled at the thought. He thought of God only as a strict judge. He thought God would judge him for his sin. He drove himself near crazy trying to fix himself. He would be in the confessional for hours upon hours during the day trying to work and work and work to make himself clean, to make himself good enough for God. He would do any ritual. He would stay up as late as he needed to to make himself right before God, but nothing worked. And one night he was studying Romans chapter 1 and he discovered that the righteousness that God requires is a gift. It was given to him by faith. And he wrote that night in his journal when he discovered the gift of righteousness is by faith, not by works. He wrote that I felt that I was altogether born again and that I had entered paradise itself as through open gates. He was converted. Why? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's a forgotten reformer who in this very text that I just read to you was transformed by reading it. He said this in his own biography. He said this, I chanced upon the sentence of St. Paul to Timothy. Oh, sweet and wonderful sentence to my soul. In 1 Timothy 1, he said, It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. He said, Of this one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that I immediately felt a marvelous comfort and quietness in so much that my bruised bones leaped for joy. Converted. Why? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I don't know if I could talk about conversions without talking about Charles Spurgeon. In his own autobiography, he writes of the day that the gospel made sense. He all his life had been wrestling. He knew it. He had heard it. But he knew that deep down his heart hadn't embraced it. 
And one morning the gospel was preached to him. And it just shattered him, but it saved him. And he wrote later in his life, he goes, oh, that happy day when I found the Savior and learned to cling to his dear feet was a day never to be forgotten by me. I could have leaped. I could have danced. There was no expression. However fanatical, which would have kept me or would have been out of keeping with the joy of my spirit at that hour. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. A monument of grace, a sinner saved by blood. My spirit saw its chains broken to pieces. I felt that I was emancipated soul, an heir of heaven, a forgiven one, accepted in Christ Jesus, plucked out of the miry clay, out of the horrible pit, with my feet set upon a rock. Spurgeon was saved. Luther was saved. Even Thomas Bilney was saved. Augustine was saved. Why? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. And I'm just naming people who have written their stories down or have had their stories written down in biographies. Not to mention all the countless others' conversions that the Lord Jesus has brought upon the life of a person, changing them and transforming them. Scan the room. We are a testament to the greatness of our converting and saving God that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We are a group of divine miracles. We are a gathering of people who have experienced the grace of God that converts and saved. Why? Because of this reality that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I mean, you've got to hear each other's stories and keep getting the amazing nature of how God saves sinners. But even if we were to talk amongst ourselves and hear everyone's stories, that's only part of the picture because this is happening all over the globe. You go to Scripture, and you see the demon-possessed maniac getting converted. You see prostitutes and tax collectors getting converted. You see the rich people getting converted. You see poor people getting converted. You see a crowd of Jews who once wanted to kill Jesus now getting converted. You see masses of Gentiles getting converted who were totally unaware of the Old Testament Scriptures, yet hearing the Gospel, getting converted. Cornelius the centurion, getting converted. The Philippian jailer, getting converted. All these amazing realities testifying to the truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Have you forgotten that God is still saving sinners through Jesus Christ? Can you bear witness to this reality that Christ has come into the world to save sinners? Not only in the fact that it's happened to you, but in the fact that this is happening around you and you've seen it. Have you been converted? Have you watched someone become converted? I've seen people get converted. There's nothing like it. I've seen people who were self-righteous and thinking they didn't have any need of a Savior get converted by the grace of God and turn into rigorous servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've seen people who had no interest in God, no interest in the Bible, that would mock me when I tried to share the gospel with them, then turn their lives over to Christ and become humble people who wanted nothing more than to live for their Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ has come in the world, and He has come in the world to save sinners and this is happening. He is risen from the dead, and yet he is not done with his saving work. I'm not talking about this emotional experience like some of the stories I read. 
C.S. Lewis didn't have it that way. He said this of his own conversion. He's on his way to the zoo. He said, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. He had been stewing on it, and in his moment of conversion, he described it like someone laying in bed all through the night and then realizing they're awake. It just clicked. So I'm not asking, have you had some sort of mystical experience, but I am saying that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to save sinners, and that means that He converts them. This is a doctrine of conversion. And the passage we're about to look at is about Paul's conversion. The word conversion, it has this idea of a change, an inward change that leads to an outward change. Uh, a life that was going this direction is now going this direction. We talk about uh, dollars being converted into euros, a change of purpose, a change of use, and this is exactly the idea behind the doctrine of conversion in the New Testament is that there's a change that happens in the person who's converted, a change that happens from the inside that results in changes on the outside, that there's a new use for that person, a new purpose for that person. We're going to talk about conversion in the power of the gospel this morning, and I hope this is in going to encourage you. I hope this is going to maybe challenge you. Most of all, I th- hope it dazzles you because of who Jesus is and what he's doing in our world. See, conversion is not just a belief in the supernatural. Conversion is when the supernatural happens to you. It's not that you just assent to some doctrines. It's that something deep happens within you to change you from the inside out. That's the theme of this next section. I'm going to read the whole thing now, and we're going to dive in. Verse 12, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We need to get a little context to this to understand how Paul is writing to Timothy and what the point of this passage is. Why does he say this? If you were here last week, you heard this passage about the law and the role of the law in breaking down the Christian so that they are prepared for the gospel. And the law and gospel are brought together. And what Paul is doing to Timothy in the whole of this letter is teaching him to, hey, you need to stay around in this church in Ephesus. You need to stick it out because this church in Ephesus is, is unhealthy. There are leaders that are off the rails. 
They are puffed up with conceit. All that they're teaching is just promoting more dissension and more friction. They're not lovingly shepherding the flock. They're not gently following up with believers and walking alongside them. These people were in it for themselves, these false teachers. And so Paul says, hey, Timothy, you've got to stay there. You've got to charge these people not to teach any different doctrine. Why? The whole point of it was so that when teaching the right doctrine, it would produce love. That's chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. That's the point of the ministry. So Timothy, make sure the doctrine's clear. Make sure the gospel's clear. Why? Because when the gospel is embraced, it produces love in the hearts of the people who accept it. Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, for them to understand the gospel, they had to understand the law. And that's what he did in chapter 1, verse 8 to 11. He understood, uh, they, they understood the law right. If they understood the law right, they could understand the gospel right. But if you put yourself in Timothy's shoes for a second, and you're going into this church in Ephesus, it's just a mess. And there's these people in leadership that are just off the rails. And Paul's saying, hey, I need you to stay here. You know, you might start to lose confidence over time that Jesus is still saving sinners. Uh, maybe they didn't see a conversion in a long time. Maybe they were in this church and because the gospel was so obscured by the false teachers, because they were teaching all these kind of endless myths and talking about genealogies and, and all these puffed up assertions, acting as if they knew everything, they weren't preaching Christ. And so probably what was happening, I imagine, because the gospel wasn't being preached, there were probably no conversions. Eh, the two seemed to go together. If the gospel's not being preached, there's probably not going to be anyone being saved. And so I think Timothy might have wondered you know, is this still happening in the world? Are people still getting saved? If you're in a church long enough that there's not a lot of baptisms or there's not a lot of new people coming and maybe it's the same people every week. And I was in a church this way uh, before I came to Grace Church to see me where in all my time there, I was there 18 months doing my best. It wasn't a very healthy church. The gospel was rarely ever preached. Uh, the members didn't trust the elders. There was kind of a mess going on there. In all my time there, I can't remember a single baptism. Couldn't remember anyone ever getting saved. And if you're in a situation like that, as I was for 18 months, you start to th maybe think, are conversions just kind of these outlandish things that happen only in the spectacular stories? Is this kind of something that's far off and distant? And we shouldn't really expect it to happen here. Maybe it only happens in other places. Maybe God has chosen to bless other churches, but our church, no, it doesn't happen with us. I think Timothy might have been thinking that. We have these false teachers. The gospel's not being preached. Uh, is it true that Christ is still saving people? And he might have been at times tempted to throw in the towel and be, man, I'm done. And so, as a way to encourage Timothy, Paul writes this letter, and he's challenged him to stick it out, but one thing that he needs to see is that the gospel still saves. And he, he tries to think of, you know, something that would encourage him to remind him that God can save anyone, and Paul can't think of anyone more amazed, or he's not amazed at anyone's salvation more than his own. So if you, want to, if you don't think God can save sinners, let me just show you that God saved me. I want you to look at verse 16 real quick. Look at verse 16. I received mercy, Paul says, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, 
Listen to this. Christ Jesus might display something. He wants to show off something. Jesus is displaying something. What? His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Well, who are they? Who are the people who believe in Christ Jesus for eternal life? That's us. You see what is happening here? Why did God save Paul? So that all generations of Christians who would ever come to trust in Christ for eternal life would see the amazing patience, the perfect patience of God. In other words, this very morning, morning, God had you in mind when he saved Paul because in saving Paul, he knew all these years later that there would be a church sitting here and seeing this text and hearing about Paul's conversion. And the whole purpose of Paul's conversion was not only to redeem him from his sin and save him for the glory of God, but it was to display the patience of God. That word perfect, perfect patience, sometimes translated inexhaustible patience. I have kids with which I am sometimes not patient. My patience is sometimes exhaustible. Another way it's sometimes translated is unlimited patience. And again, you could think of people who bring your patience to a limit. And sometimes it's hard, you get annoyed, or maybe it's your own flesh, you want things your way, you feel annoyed at the people and how they've rubbed you the wrong way, or how they've offended you, and your patience runs thin, and Paul is saying, well, think about the patience of God. Perfect. Inexhaustible. You can't annoy him. (laughs) You can't be too much in his face so that he's annoyed and pulls away from you because he's out of patience. He doesn't doesn't say to you, I've had it up to here. He doesn't say those things. Why? His patience is inexhaustible. It's unlimited. And so friends, the conversion of Paul is a standing monument for us to see this very morning that God's patience is perfect perfect for sinners. It is inexhaustible towards sinners. It is unlimited towards sinners. And so if you are a person who thinks, well, God can't save me, let me say, worse people have been saved. If you think this morning that God can't save my wayward daughter, my prodigal son, my hardened husband or wife, My brother who's walked away from the Lord. My sister who seems to get into all this other stuff that just seems like she's never going to get out of it. Your stubborn neighbor. If you think God can't save them, this text is for you. If you've given up praying for them, this text is for you. Because this is meant to show the inexhaustible, unlimited patience of God towards sinners. And if God saved Paul, who was their chief, he can save anyone. And so we're going to see three truths about the grace of God in this passage that ought to dazzle us, encourage us, and even maybe for you, cause you to reflect, have I been touched by this grace? Has this grace changed me? Have I been converted? Maybe you need to ask that question. Here's our first truth. Grace comes, this is the most obvious one, grace comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 12, I thank Him. Right off the bat, he's not going to take credit for anything about who he is. He shoots up in thankfulness. He looks up to the cause of his own conversion, and it's not him. I thank him. 
who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the source. Jesus makes people Christians. Jesus is the source of grace that changes and converts the sinner. It comes from Him. He thanks Him for the strength. That's not talking about physical strength. It's not talking about His strength of His muscles or His strength of His personality. He's talking about the strength, the Spirit-given strength that enables Him to serve the true God. He didn't have that strength before, but Christ gave Him that strength. It says, Christ Jesus our Lord, that's the source. Why? Because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Paul was judged faithful. Why? Because Jesus gave him strength. It's not saying that because Paul was so faithful, uh, that Paul was this man that was so faithful, that's why God came and chose him. That's why God gave him the, the appointment to the service. Jesus strengthened him and made him faithful which is why he takes no credit from the very beginning it's all about thankfulness to him paul is not saying anything to give credit to himself he is saying jesus gave me spiritual strength and that's why i've been faithful it's all him he appointed me to his service he goes on to say he appointed me to his service he's the one who did all these things if you, you just kind of read this and you look at who's passive and who's active in, in what Jesus does and what Paul does, it's a really awesome just thought. Paul is just the passive recipient in this text. All the things that are happening to him are happening to him from Jesus, and he's contributing nothing. Verse 13, I received mercy. 16, I received mercy. It says it again. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Here Paul is, he's, I got strength. He counted me faithful. He appointed me to his service. He poured out his mercy on me. He overflowed his grace for me. Jesus is doing all of it. Jesus overflows with grace. Jesus is the one who strengthens. Jesus is the one who commends his faithful. Jesus is the one who appoints to service. What you say, well, what did Paul do? What was his contribution to this great, amazing salvation and this great conversion? What did Paul do? Well, verse 13, I guess if you want to go down that road, this is what Paul did. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. <laughs> you know what Paul's contribution to his salvation was? The sin that made the saving necessary. That's it. He contributed nothing. Friends, there is a source of grace. A source of converting grace, of strengthening grace, empowering grace, and it's not within you. It's outside of you. As a source for growth and change, it's not within you. It's outside of you. It's external to you. You can't find it on the inside. You can't look within and come up with something to change yourself. Grace, the grace that transforms, comes from the outside. Paul makes this very clear. It comes from Jesus Christ. Christ came into the world to save sinners. If you are in need of grace this morning, and you are, <laughs> we all are, the good news is that God has not left you on your own to try to figure it out. Grace is not in you trying your best. Grace is not just understanding an impersonal set of doctrines. Grace is 
given primarily to us in a person who lived the perfect life you couldn't live and died for your sins on that cross and rose from the dead victorious over sin and Satan and hell and death. It's in a person. Your hope is a person. Grace comes from a person, a living, available person who has come into the world. And so he has made himself available. He is not distant. Grace comes through Jesus Christ and all the grace you need is right there at his disposal and you can come to him. You can't make it yourself. You can't conjure it up from within. You can't manufacture it. Grace is from Jesus. It is from outside of you. Come to him. It's the grace that saved Paul. How much power is in that grace? And what could that grace do for you? See, it's not hard for Jesus to convert you. It's not hard for Jesus to convert the one that's in your mind right now that you're thinking about, man, I wonder if they'll ever be converted. It's not hard for Jesus to save them. Not for a split second would it be difficult for Jesus, the Son of God, to save the chief of sinners. You read Acts 9, maybe go do that later this afternoon, and just read about how Paul was saved. It wasn't hard for Jesus. He was the worst sinner on the planet. It was nothing to him. He spoke some God's authoritative words that just powerfully transformed that man in an instant. It wasn't hard. But for you to change yourself and convert yourself and to manufacture your own grace, it is impossible. Try climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. I mean, that's about as good a chance you have of changing yourself from the inside out, converting yourself from the inside out. You have no chance. But Jesus, it is so easy for him. So call upon him. He has already demonstrated his willingness to die and rise for sinners like us. He has made himself available. Romans 8, how will he then not also with him graciously give us all things? So come to Jesus Christ. Grace comes from him. Secondly, here's the second thing we need to see about grace. So not only is it only through Jesus Christ, it is not in any other place, you can't find it in any other corner of the globe or any other system of thought, it is through a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. But secondly, we need to see this, the kind of grace that is talked about here. Secondly, this, grace transforms from the inside out. These conversions happen. These conversions are happening. See, sometimes we think of, of grace in the way that it forgives your sin. It's true, gloriously true. Grace is God's overflowing love to those who don't deserve it. So grace is God's gift, God's making himself available, God's giving of himself, God's giving of his power in love to those who have not done anything to deserve it. It results in their salvation. It results in their conversion. It results in their justification. This is the grace of God, and it forgives sins. But listen, sometimes we think about grace as forgiving, and we forget also, it is forgiving, but we forget also that grace is, listen, transforming. Grace is transformative. Grace is converting. Grace will change your life. I want you to see this in the life of Paul. He says in verse 14, look at verse 14. And the grace, there it is. The grace of our Lord. He's talking about Jesus and he can't help but call him Lord because he's so enamored with his character and his, his authority over his own life. 
He says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Overflowed, that word is, uh, has the uh, prefix that sounds like hyper, like hyper-flowing, super-abounding, overflowing. You want a picture of the way that God's grace pours into the life of those who don't deserve it? Think of a Dixie cup under Niagara Falls. This is, we are such small, insignificant vessels, and the grace of God is so immeasurably powerful. It superabounds, it spills over, it comes from heaven, it is not from within, it comes from Christ, and it abounds and it transforms. You cannot, listen, you cannot receive the grace of God and not be changed by it. You cannot receive it without having it change you. It will obliterate your pride. It will change your heart. And I want you to see what Paul says because this is coming straight out of the text. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed, superabounded, hyperabounding grace from Jesus. For me, listen to this, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You say, how did the grace transform Paul? Grace came down. Abundant, overflowing grace came down from heaven through Jesus Christ. And what happened to Paul as a result? When the overflowing grace touched him, it produced something new in him. And what it produced in him was faith and love. Do you see that in the text? The grace overflowed, and the result of this overflowing grace was that Christ's very own faith and love, his dependence on his heavenly Father, his love for his heavenly Father, was then given to Paul. Faith and love were produced in the heart of Paul. That is inside transformation being talked about. Grace is not Paul on the Damascus Road and Jesus appearing and saying, hey, here's who I am. I'm your Lord. Why are you persecuting me? And, and then in the hearing of the gospel, Saul, who turns to Paul, didn't just hear it and go, oh, that's great. Grace is awesome. All my sins forgiven. Now I'm going to continue on my way to Damascus and find those Christians I was about to get. No, no, he's transformed. It is impossible to really receive the grace of God and not be transformed. It transforms you. How? The grace comes, the life of Christ, the life of the Spirit is given to the believer. How? So that faith and love are produced in that person. Do you see what this means? Your faith is a gift from God. Even the love you have for God comes from God. This is what... 1 John says that we love only because he first loved us. Even our love for him is from him. Our love for him is because he changed something in us and enabled us to love him. Even our ability to believe in him is him creating in us the ability to believe him. We, we couldn't, isn't this humbling? Isn't this amazingly humbling? That in our sinful condition, we couldn't even believe. We couldn't even love unless He loved us first. Unless He gave us a new heart that could believe. We couldn't do that. We needed grace. I want you to see this even in more stark color. So turn to John chapter 3. I don't know if it's explained more clearly than in John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And the need of inward transformation and how God actually does that. Uh, there's a man in, in John chapter 3, verse 1, there's a man uh, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So think, 
Think high-ranking, think religious man, think a man who knows the Old Testament scriptures, think of a man who's good and honored in the community, who's well-known, who's respected. Think of that man. He's a ruler of the Jews, so he he's a, has a measure of authority. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God and no one can do these signs unless, you, unless God is with him. So he recognized something about Jesus is... Uh, powerful. He wants to know what's going on. Verse 3, listen to this. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. <laughs> you got to be born again, Nicodemus. You spent your whole life mastering the law. You spent your whole life climbing the religious ladder. You spent your whole life gaining the respect of the people. You got to the top, and this rabbi named Jesus, who used to be a carpenter, comes up to you and has the audacity to say that all that you've done is nothing. You won't even get into the kingdom for all that stuff. You need something different. You need to be born again. Now, Nicodemus, I imagine, is just shattered by this. How can a man be born again, he says, when he's old? How can I start over? How, what do you mean, born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Obviously, he's not getting it. <laughs> Look at this, verse 5. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You say, well, what in the world does that mean? Jesus is making a direct reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, where he's talking about the new covenant. You could jot that in your Bible if you want to do a little cross-referencing there. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26. This was the promise that the Old Testament prophets talked about. And what he said in the Old Testament, listen to this. When the new covenant would come, when Jesus would initiate the new covenant, listen to what God would do to his people. Listen to this. You could turn there if you want, but just listen to this. Ezekiel 36, starting in 25, the prophet said this. I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's the water. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. You see that? I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Listen to this word. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. That's what it means to be born of water and spirit. That the spirit comes, he takes out your heart of stone, he gives you a new heart, he cleanses you by water, he changes you, he puts his spirit in you, he causes you by his spirit to walk in obedience to him. That's what it means to be born again. Look at verse 6, if you're still in John, John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That is to say, if you were born and you haven't had an inward transformation, you're just flesh. There's no spiritual element to your life in terms of your relationship with God. You are dead in your spirit. You're just flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, is spirit. The Holy Spirit creates new life in the believer. He comes. In verse 7, he describes him like, he's, like the Spirit is like wind. In verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's coming from. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus looked at this religious man in the eye, this man who had accomplished much, this man who was a religious top elite man, and he said, you must be born again. 
And what that meant was that there must be some inward transformation, this inward removal of the old heart, this inward gift of a new heart, new affections, new desires, new joys, new delights, new loves, new faith. No, the kind of faith that would then walk in obedience to God. See, see, listen to this. The Christian life is not, listen, is not a natural life you do on your own strength. The Christian salvation and conversion isn't something that people manufacture. It isn't something you can manipulate in someone else's heart. It is when God sovereignly acts to save His people by His grace, by removing their old hearts, giving them new hearts, giving them faith, giving them love. He does it all by the power of His Spirit through the preaching of the Gospel. You can't manufacture it. You can't manipulate it. It is God's divine act upon a human soul. It is totally sovereign grace. It is completely free grace. God was not sitting in heaven waiting for Paul to get on his knees and pray the sinner's prayer. He reached in and grabbed his heart. He opened up his blind eyes. He gave him a new heart. He changed him from the inside out. And that conversion is a picture of all conversions from that point forward. Not that it happens in all the same way and identically to Paul, but in the terms of what happens in your spirit. It is what happens to every Christian. In other words, conversion is for every believer. In fact, if you haven't been converted, you are not yet saved. The good news is, is the Lord Jesus Christ is available right right this very moment and you can be converted. And that everything that's old and everything that has not been changed from the inside out can be changed as you put your faith in Him and trust Him and you look to Him and you actually believe He can do these things He's saying He will do. So the Christian life is not your own thing. It is the life of God in the soul of man. Friends, do we believe this still happens? Or we, have, we, we, we minimized or lowered what we think conversion is. We think conversion is just showing up to church a lot. We think conversion is being willing to do a few things to help out. We think conversion is maybe just praying a prayer. Praying a prayer is great. That's not conversion. Conversion is something completely different. Conversion is when God changes you from the inside out. That's what real saving grace does. It overflowed for Paul, he says, with faith, with love. It changed him and it gave him faith. It gave him love. The very faith of Christ, the very love of Christ was put into the heart of a man who did not love him previously and it changed him dramatically. Friends, may we never forget this truth. Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. And the way he saves them is by his grace. And that grace is a converting grace. It converts people. Let's keep that standard true. That this really does happen. Now, third truth about the grace of God. We're going to wrap it up here. And this might be the most amazing Third, grace is for the worst of sinners. If grace is, in fact, apart from works of the law, if grace is, in fact, not God responding to our goodness, but Him freely giving 
to people who don't deserve it, love and forgiveness and transforming power to those people. And if it's not based on what they've done, then it's for anyone. Because no sin then leaves you out of that category of people who can be saved. It's for anyone. It's for the worst of sinners. So, so Paul, implicitly in verse 12, is saying before he knew Christ, he didn't have strength because he's thanking Christ for the strength. So that means before he met Christ, before Christ met him, he didn't have strength to serve the Lord. He didn't have any faithfulness. He wasn't appointed to service. But look at this, verse 13. Formerly, I was a blasphemer. That is, I spoke, this is talking about a way he spoke, the, his words, he spoke against God. He blasphemed the true God. He spoke offensively of God and of the work of Christ. He spoke offensively of the church and the people of God. But it didn't just stay there because the next word says he was a persecutor. That means his words weren't just words, they turned into actions. That he would literally seek out Christians to hurt. He was violent. He was breathing threats and murder, it says in the book of Acts. That he was murderous. That he wanted to obliterate the church. And he would go to whatever outrageous act he needed to do to get this thing shut down. That's what he was doing. And so he wasn't only speaking blasphemies. He was a zealous persecutor. And then it says not only that, he was an insolent opponent. He was injurious to the cause, some translations say. The word could literally be translated, he was a doer of outrage. He would do things that God saw as completely outrageous. An outrage to God, an outrage to his own creator, an outrage to Christ, the one who would then meet him and save him. It was an outrage to Christ. The hosts of heaven watching what Paul did, it was an outrage to them. It was a complete outrage what this man was doing. He says he received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. This isn't Paul trying to say, oh, I just didn't know what I was doing. He's not making an excuse. He's saying that his own ignorance is a part of the problem. It's part of his own sin. He was someone who didn't know who God was and therefore raged against the church in outrageous ways. Part of his own guilt was not knowing the truth, not accepting the truth, suppressing the truth. And so he says in verse 15, that after saying that Christ Jesus came and do the world to save sinners, he says this, he stamps this on his very soul. He puts this as the label that you can categorize me as, I am the foremost of sinners. I am the sinner. I am the sinner of all sinners. Put the picture together. Here's a man, he's unable to please God. He has no faith in God. He's unwilling to serve God. He speaks curses toward God. He speaks curses towards God's people. He hates them with a passion. He wants to destroy them. He wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. He's committed to outrageous things. He is darkened in his mind. He's deceived. He's blind to the truth of the glories of the gospel. He's unable to admit it. He's ignorant, he's doing everything against God, he's violent, he's aggressive, he's fervent in his opposition to God. Friends, this is the last guy you think's getting saved. This is the last guy you think has a chance. Who's that person that comes up into your mind when I say people, or I cause you to think about people who might never get saved? Who's that person that comes into your mind? Paul's worse. Paul's way worse. It's hard to come up with parallels to the kind of figure Paul was. You could think of 
Osama bin Laden, a terrorist who thinks he's serving God by committing violence against God's people. Uh, how, how often do we pray for a man like that to get converted? Um, you try think of the worst and the worst throughout history. Try think of the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Pol Pots. Try, try thinking of those people. Try thinking of that person being converted. This is who Paul is. This is who he was apart from the grace of God. But he, Paul, Paul, Paul is saying he's the worst. And this is what Paul's doing. He's the chief, protas, first, foremost. He's, he's saying this, gather up all the sinners. Gather every age of sinner. Get Hitler, get Stalin, get every dictator. Open up the cells on death row. Get all the perverts out. Get all the cowards out. Get all the thugs out. Get everyone out. Bring them all together. Or let's go into the uh, Old Testament. Let's, let's get Manasseh. Uh, who in, in Jeroboam, and let's get the idolaters, let's get the, the sinners of Baal, let's get Jezebel herself, or let's go to the New Testament, let's get the Pharisees who self-righteously opposed Jesus, let's get the Romans who spit on him and put him on the cross and nailed those nails into his hands and put that crown of thorns on his head, let's get them together, let's get those people all in a mass, let's get Judas, and let's put him right there, and listen, Paul would say, look at all these people. I am their chief. I have done worse things. I am the chief of sinners. And I've been saved by grace. Grace is that powerful. Grace is for the worst of sinners. If he could be saved, anyone could be saved. And just remember what verse 16 says. His conversion. Paul's conversion is for you to remind you of the inexhaustible, unlimited, perfect patience of God. There is no one you've ever crossed paths with that has sinned so deeply that Christ's grace could not save them. There is no one you know who is unable to be powerfully converted by the grace of God. Because God's patience, long-suffering towards sinners is perfect. So friends, as we apply this, if you've ever doubted that God loves you or that he's going to stay committed to you or that life is going to get so hard and it might mean that he has abandoned you, let this remind you that his grace toward you was not because you were good or better than other people. It was part of his sovereign plan and he has chosen to save you and the grace of God will overflow for you, not just the day of your conversion, but all the days of your life. It will pursue you. His grace will chase after you. His grace is for you. He's going to hold you, Christian. And the evidence is because he saved Paul. How amazing is his grace toward us. We're going to sing this song at the end, He Will Hold Me Fast, which is to celebrate the preserving grace of God. Not only that his grace converted us, but it preserves us. And in this song, we will sing these words. Those he saves are his delight. Precious in his holy sight, he'll not let my soul be lost. Bought by him at such a cost. His grace is inexhaustible. His patience is inexhaustible and unlimited. And so rejoice in that, Christian. Secondly, 
don't give up on that person. That spouse, that daughter, that husband, that father, that friend, that neighbor, who seems so uninterested, who seems so antagonistic. Paul was both those things when he was converted. It was a complete surprise out of heaven that Paul got converted, and that can still happen. And so you don't need to give up praying. Continue praying for that person. Continue pouring out your heart to God for that person. Of course he could save them. It's not hard for God to save them. Trust in God and then just keep praying. Because it happened to Augustine through the reading of a verse. It happened to Luther through the reading of a verse. It happened to Spurgeon through the preaching of a sermon. It happened to Paul and he was not in a church and he didn't hear a sermon. He didn't have the Bible in front of him. Jesus just showed up. And thousands of others throughout the history of the church, this has been happening. And we're here because we believe, listen, it still happens. And we believe that it will continue to happen. And we believe that God has been so kind and gracious to privilege us to participate in His redemptive plan, not only here in Rancho, but in the world, in the nations. We believe that conversions are happening, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and the foremost was Paul, and the worst has already been saved, and now we can keep preaching the gospel. This gospel is that God will save the worst of the worst, and he will convert them. He will give them faith and love from the inside out. He will change their lives. He will put, them, put within them the Holy Spirit that enables them to live in obedience to his word. Our church will bear witness to this reality because we will be a congregation of converted people. But also we will bear witness to this reality because we will believe that the worst of the worst can still be converted. We will not stop praying for those people who have not yet been converted. Because we will look at this text and we'll see if Paul was converted, then certainly they can be too. I'm not giving up. I will keep praying and we will continue praying for those people. We will continue talking to those people. We will continue hope, holding out hope for those people. Amen? Let's finish in in a word of prayer. So Lord, it is my prayer that you would use these words of Paul to save sinners. So again, if there is someone in this room who feels at this moment that maybe they have professed Christ, but they have not been converted by the gospel, that they would be converted even this very moment. That they would place their faith in Him and feel the burden lifted, sins forgiven, and the new life of faith and love being produced within them. That they would be born again right now as they come to Jesus Christ. And we pray also, Lord, for all of us that we would just be dazzled by your patience towards sinners, your inexhaustible patience, your unlimited patience, and that we would then be encouraged to continue praying, to continue seeking out your favor in our evangelism and discipleship of our friends and neighbors and family. And Father, we do pray that we would have the great privilege of seeing the most amazing conversions happen here, 
We don't deserve it, not for a split second, but we know that you are worthy and you are able. And so we ask that you would show us again, remind us again of your amazing power in the conversion of sinners. So please, Lord, do that among us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.